Hello everyone, welcome to the second podcast in the TEDxUWA Thursday series on the UWA Alumni Voices podcast. I'm Nithin, a former TEDxUWA member and a UWA alumni. I've been part of the committee since the very beginning and I was head of speaker resources at TEDxUWA in 2016. At TEDxUWA, we host TED-like talks focused on the impressive work and inspiring stories from UWA students, alumni and researchers. We have now teamed up with the Young Alumni Network to continue the conversation sparked by our UWA alumni speakers through this podcast series. Every fortnight, a TEDx UWA member will bring on a UWA alumnus that has previously spoken at a TEDx UWA event to discuss their experience as a speaker and what they've been up to since their talk. Tonight, TEDx UWA will be running our first ever virtual event called TEDx UWA Revival on Facebook Premiere and Zoom. This event is free and we will have two speakers discussing developments in telehealth in response to COVID-19 and advice for students who will be graduating during this recession. There will also be a live Q&A on Zoom with our speakers, so make sure to submit questions on the live stream. Now, it is with my great pleasure to be hosting this podcast with current City Vice President of Embroiderers Guild of Western Australia, Anne-Marie Anderson Mays. Anne-Marie is a hand embroidery artist based in Perth, WA. She has been stitching for as long as she can remember, but only took it up full-time in 2012 when she started her business, Beautiful Stitches. Her former professional career as a scientist was strongly grounded in mathematics, and that passion for geometry and numbers is clearly expressed in her embroidery designs. It's all about colour and pattern. Anne-Marie teaches her style of embroidery at a variety of, a, a variety of venues around Australia, including Tresellian Arts Centre in Netherlands, um, City and Country branches of the Embroiderers Guild of WA, the Embroiderers Guild Victoria, and the Embroiderers Guild of South Australia in Adelaide. Hello, Anne-Marie. How are you going today? I'm well. It's really nice to be here. Yeah. So can you start by telling us a bit about what your TED Talk was on in, uh, from 2016? Uh, my TED Talk was all about making mistakes. Uh, the, one of the things I've learned on my journey so far is that it's really important to make mistakes because you learn so much more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. And that was something that I didn't know particularly well when I was an undergraduate and it was a lesson I had to learn. And so I think transitioning from science to embroidery was, was a way for me to learn about making mistakes and that's what my talk was about. So to give our audience some background, I met Amory in 2016 when we were organising TEDxUWA's first event. Uh, it was called Masterpiece. At TEDxUWA, when we started, we wanted to give a platform for UWA students to share their stories and discover new ideas. And Masterpiece was born from that idea. Uh, so Anne-Marie, what were your experiences of the event and your TED Talks experience? I absolutely loved it. It was really just a fantastic experience. I think, um, I, I, I can't even remember how I saw it. I think maybe it came through as a, a thing on, on Facebook and I went, oh, that looks like something fun. I could enjoy doing that. And so I just went through the process of applying and, and seeing where it went. But for me, it was more that it really started me thinking about my embroidery practice more broadly. And I think the, the, that it gave me that idea of there's more to this than just embroidery. And I think perhaps TEDx, the TEDx talk I, talk I gave was the first time that I made that transition from just thinking about the embroidery for embroidery's sake to something a little broader. 
And uh, so I, I just loved it. The experience was absolutely fantastic. And you guys did a brilliant job of organising it. Oh, thanks for that. It was, a, it was a very interesting event in the sense that it was the first thing that we were running. So a lot of it was just us working on the fly. So it's good to yeah, hear that. Yeah, well, you did really well. And there were some really interesting speakers. It was such a nice blend of people. And, and I've, I've stayed in touch with a couple of them because we've, it was really, really interesting to hear different people's perspectives on the theme. It was, it was great. I loved it. What did you want members of the audience to take away from the talk? I guess there were two things. One, I just wanted to share my story. Um, and, and I actually had quite a few people connect to my story, which was partly driven by the fact that as a, as a woman, I'd found it hard to find my niche, trying to balance family and my career. So I had quite a few women respond in the audience afterwards and say, oh, we understand about finding it really hard to, to manage your career versus your family balance and that sort of stuff. So that was quite interesting and, and an unexpected side thing. But I really wanted people to get the idea that making mistakes is not a bad thing. And I had quite a few people who came up to me afterwards and said, we, we live in a society where we're expected to get things right all the time and we're measured by getting things right all the time. And I had a lot of really positive responses to, to people saying it's, it's okay to get things wrong and you need to get things wrong because that's how you learn. So the, the engagement for me was, was fantastic. It was interesting um, hearing you talk about balancing your career and your family. Can you tell us a bit about how, what started your career like early on? So your personal connection to UWA and your experience at the university? Yeah, well, actually, my university experience started at the University of Adelaide. And through them, I had this absolute passion for physics and astronomy. I, I was going to be an astronomer. Um, and through family circumstances, I moved from the Uni of Adelaide to the University of Western Australia at the end of my second year to start my third year. And so uh, I had this still this very, very strong idea that I was going to be involved in science in some way. The... Uh, I guess the transition shifted me from astronomy to geophysics and that's where I ended up uh, working for a few years after I finished my honours degree at UWA. That whole process was quite interesting because I was the only woman in the physics department at the time or the only woman majoring in physics when I did my third year and my honours and then I was one of a very small team of women working in geophysics at the company that I worked at and through that, I got involved with an organisation called WISE, Women in Science and Engineering, which was run by UWA. And uh, after I'd been working for a couple of years, the position of project coordinator for that project came up. And I applied and I was successful in getting it. And I was just thrilled to come back to UWA and work in a project where we were promoting science and engineering to women, young girls, and encouraging them to follow a non-traditional path especially because for me, it never felt like a non-traditional choice. I went to a girls' school in Adelaide where doing science was just normal. It wasn't seen as something strange. And it really wasn't until I got to UWA that I realised that there were a lot of women who hadn't been able to make that choice or hadn't felt confident to make that choice. And so for me, the WISE project was a really important part of my career, I think, because it really brought me to understand gender issues much more than I had in the past. And with regards to your, um, the audience, uh, the group of women that you were reaching out through the WISE project, was it high school students, primary school students? Yeah, so I guess our main target was high school students. That was where the program was, was targeted. But um, we felt that 
often if by the time you're trying to reach say girls who are in year 11 and 12 they've already made their subject choices in year 10 so we felt like that was almost a little bit too late so we also did some work with primary school students because actually if you can just get all children engaged in science then you're reaching both girls and boys who who might be engaged and hopefully if you can instill that spark in girls at that stage and then provide the support systems to give them the confidence to keep making those choices later on then um, you can get more more women flowing through the brief for the project was also to have some support for students who were at all at uwa already enrolled um, i have to say that that was that was very rarely utilized i think most girls once they've made the choices and were in that area were completely comfortable and fine and well supported by the staff and and so on so that that really was although it was a nominal part of our role it, it didn't play a huge part in what we did but we used to run programs where we bring you know groups of girls onto campus and take them through the engineering department or the physics department or the computer science or whatever and it was it was it was fun for them and engaging for them and really interesting for me to see girls who had come from various backgrounds and some of them who who just made the choice without even thinking about it and some of them for whom it had been quite a difficult choice to decide to do say double maths physics and chemistry at the time and what kind of conversations were you having with these young girls trying to talk about science and introduce science to them as a possible career I pathway? We were mostly we were mostly just encouraging them to see all the options. So perhaps mm. things that they just hadn't seen or to uh, to see the variety of careers that you can have as an engineer or a mathematician or a physicist. You know, sometimes these kinds of especially particularly with a, a physics background, I guess, physicists are often seen as the mad scientists. Um, and, and so many physicists do so many interesting and different things across a whole variety of industries. And so we just wanted them to see the wide variety of options, you know, physics applied in medicine or physics applied to sports science or physics applied to materials. You know, there's, there's so many different ways. It's not just the, the so-called mad scientist that has a particularly bad rap. So I think we, we wanted to give them as much information as possible and we wanted to encourage them to talk and ask questions and communicate with us about what they wanted to know more about. And, and these, these fields, engineering, physics, are, are traditionally less so now, but they've probably been male-dominated fields. Um, mm. So what advice do you have for women, especially young women, about working in uh, these male-dominated fields? I think the most important thing is to stay confident. <laughs> Women have a tendency to step back and until we have a, a feeling that we've got all of the information and we know everything that we need to know, we, we, we have a tendency to not put ourselves forward. Um, and, and it's important that we actually maintain our confidence. I, I, I think that's the thing that I learned. I, to start off with, wasn't especially confident. I'm much more confident now than I used to be. But I, I used to think, oh, these people are all a lot smarter than me so maybe I won't open my mouth <laughs> and I think that was a in retrospect a, a stupid attitude to take but but it can be hard when when you're especially perhaps 30 years ago when I was a student girls were expected to be good and you were expected to be quiet and you were expected to be well behaved and so um, it could be sometimes hard to to stand your ground and say, well, actually, I disagree or I don't, or, you know, that wasn't necessarily seen as a good thing. So I, I think a lot of that is changing and I think that's great. So my advice is just be confident. Be confident in yourself and be confident in what you have to offer because you do have something to offer. And I think it's really important 
as a society that we see that um, we don't want women to go into these professions and be pretend men. <laughs> we want women mm -hmm. to go into these professions and be women and bring the perspective of both genders to bear on, on the, the important problems because we do have different perspectives at times. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. um, just on the other side of the coin, what advice do you have for young men working with women in male-dominated fields? Gosh, now that's an interesting question. Um, I guess I would encourage them to listen, <laughs> mm. I suppose. Um, the, the, the other side of the coin is that, that and certainly in my experience, um, some of the men that I worked with were incredibly confident and incredibly um, willing to put their, their opinions forward and I would take that, that, that confidence that they had in their presentation and stay quiet. And sometimes it's important for them to also stop and listen and hear a different perspective, I think. So perhaps it's, it's learning those listening skills that are important too. Mm. Is that, does that sound terrible? <laughs> no, I think, yeah, I think that's a, I think we should all be listening. And I think especially yeah. um, in this kind of um, fields where, they are dominated by men, especially in engineering and physics. I definitely agree. I'd, I'd agree with that. And so kind of moving back to, you said it's been about 30 years since you were a student. Um, when you came <laughs> back, when you came back in 2016 to UWA for the TEDx event itself, and you were kind of walking around the campus, what, what were some of the things that you, you thought to yourself, Oh, this has changed up a bit. Um, well, actually, the, the, the top end of, oh, I call it the top end, the, the end where the physics block is and um, uh, for, I guess from, from the library all the way back up to Stirling Highway hasn't changed a lot. Uh, and so it, in a kind of a way, it's a little bit going like going back in time. And my favourite thing to do at UWA was to walk around the campus. It's, it's, you know, without doubt, one of the most beautiful campuses in the world. It's just beautiful. Uh, and so... Uh, I found myself when I came back for, for TEDx just enjoying walking, you know, through through the through the gardens and past the buildings and remembering things and and that it, it's a it's a beautiful space. It's it's a beautiful space that has a beautiful feel to it. Yeah, I, th I think I've noticed that only after I've left UWA when I when I go back to visit my friends and I'm taking the the very scenic drive from the city to UWA along the river. Yeah. That's when yep. you realise, oh, actually, it's been quite a beautiful place that I've been studying at for a long time. Exactly. It really is. It's a beautiful, beautiful space. And the river right there is, is fantastic. I spent many, many hours um, between lectures just heading down to the river and going for a walk or a ride along the river. And I was fortunate to live very close to campus. So, so uh, that, that space and that, that feeling of space, it's actually that feeling of openness and space it was, is a, a really important part of the campus and how it feels. And quite different to the University of Adelaide from where I'd come, which was a much more closely, densely built campus. And, and I think some of the other universities in, in the other states, they're all kind of situated just in, in the city, or very close mm. to the CBD. So I feel like space is something they have to really work with. Um, yes. So I, I definitely agree. So how would you say the time at UWA as an undergraduate and in your career working in WISE has um, been important to your life today in what you do day to day? 
Yeah, I think, so I think, like I said earlier, the, the WISE experience was really important because it was, it was the time that I learned much more about gender issues and they really hadn't been something that was strongly on my radar um, until I became somebody who was working in that field. I, I, it, it was a, a growing consciousness, I guess, from, from my undergrad where I had suddenly realised that there weren't very many women around um, and then taking that and, and wanting to explore it further. So I think that, that awareness of gender issues was the thing that became really important to me and it's, I've carried it ever since. Um, and, uh, and I've been much more conscious of finding out more information and trying to understand different perspectives. So I think, I think that was what the journey taught me. It was, it was, it's been more aware and more uh, open to learning more about different, particularly different women's experiences of, of uh, their occasionally coming up against difficulties or, or <laughs> I guess the older you get, the more you realize that there are many entrenched systems in society that that hold women back and you don't kind of realize that they're there until you're in the middle of them and and that's the awareness that particularly wise uh gave me mm. and are you still in close contact with the people you worked at uh, during your time in wise um, no um there's uh many of them have retired um right. uh and uh, there's a few who i sort of touch base with every now and again and um, we're still all absolutely passionate about it. Like when we get back together and talk, we're still all passionate about how important these issues are. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, especially since I moved away from my professional science career and into to the embroidery side of things, um, I've had less and less contact with those, mm. those networks. And talking a bit more about your transition from science to embroidery, um, could you tell us a bit more about how, how, the, how that was like? What was your thought process as you were moving from science career to an embroidery career? Yeah, so, so it was this business that was, it was driven by the fact that I was finding it really hard to have a successful science career and be a mum. So I had, I did my PhD at UQ. So there were a whole series of steps, but basically having done uh, the Women in Science and Engineering project, I went back to work in geophysics and then I went and did my PhD at UQ in a, a broad geophysics and environmental project. And I finished it and submitted it uh, about two weeks before my son was born, my first child was born. And so uh, I very quickly went from being in a, an academic research mindset into being a mum and I was um, a woman who wanted to spend time with her kids so I did actually want to be at home with my kids. So I took a career break and then you suddenly realise that by taking a career break you've, you've kind of shot yourself in the foot <laughs> because I then didn't have uh, any postdoctoral experience, I didn't have any record of uh, papers that I'd been producing since I'd done my PhD. So then I was starting to think, okay, what, what other parts can you take? So for a while I did some consulting and then for a while I edited a science magazine. Uh, and these things were, were fun and they were interesting and I learned a lot from them, but they, they didn't feel very fulfilling. And uh, for years and years and years I've created, I've, I've been, like, a, like you said at the beginning, I've been stitching for as long as I can remember. And that, Craft work has always been really, really important to my 
sense of well-being and my sense of wholeness, I guess. And uh, I was fortunate when we were living in Victoria, my husband and I have moved a lot with his job. And when we were living in Victoria, I was fortunate to do a masterclass in a technique in embroidery called canvas work, which for people who know this kind of stuff is basically cross-stitch on steroids. And it was like this light bulb went off in my head that here was this embroidery niche, if you like, that had a really strong mathematical basis to it. So it connected my love for making things with my love for the intellectual and the patterns and the numbers and that kind of thing. And it was like I just found this space that fitted me really, really well. So then I thought, well, I'd really like to, to take this further. And how do I, how do you become an embroiderer? You know, what do you do? And I kept sort of just nudging the boundaries of it and looking for ideas and talking to lots and lots of people around me. Um, I have to say that it, it took my husband a while to, to come to grips with the idea because it's not something that you go into with any kind of knowledge of where the path is going. So it's a very uncertain step to take. And um, I think he was worried for me. He was worried that this hobby that had been a passion for my life would become something that I would hate because I was working all the time on, on my hobby. So, but eventually an opportunity came up for me to teach children how to sew. And that was how it all started. So um, a group of children um, whose mums I knew wanted to learn how to sew. So I started with them and then I just very gradually built my business. Uh, I think I just needed that first little spark of, okay, here's the first step. Um, the first step is I'll teach children how to sew. And then from there, I just kept building the steps. So it was a, it was a gradual transition, I guess, in a way. There was a very defined moment when I said, okay, I'm going to create a business. It's going to be called Beautiful Stitches and this is how it's going to work. But then the, the full transition was slow. And I think the very, very best piece of advice I had was from my mum who said to me, give yourself five years. She said, if, if after five years you feel like this is not working, then you're allowed to say this was a failure. But she said, don't call it after 12 months because there's no point. You know, 12 months is not long enough to, to have given yourself a chance. And she was absolutely right. It was actually probably about the year three or four mark that I started to go, oh, I've got something here. And actually that was about the time that I came to do the TEDx talk. So, so that was kind of a nice nexus that it was about that time that I, I really started to know, oh yes, I'm, I'm doing something and it's, and it's working and I'm making a contribution. So, yeah. And, and you said some, that you faced some challenges and um, I, I'd say internally and externally. Um, what, what, how, what were some of the ways that, you kind of tried to tackle them um, yeah, as you were trying um, to go about it. Just lots and lots of conversations, I guess. <laughs> I think the thing is that um, doing handwork and doing craft work and working in this area can often be seen as being quite um, unintellectual, I guess. So coming from an academic background with a PhD in, in geophysics, it was seen as a, an odd choice, you know? um, and I think for some people it was almost, are you sure you're not going backwards? <laughs> that kind of feeling. Um, and uh, I think, yes, yeah, so there were lots and lots of conversations and there were also um, a really important network of people around me who were very, very supportive. Um, my mum obviously is one of them. My mum and I have a great relationship and she's always been a champion. 
um, and the rest of my family all around me. Also, funnily enough, my kids. So at the time that I really started to think about this, my son was about 10 and my daughter was about six. And uh, when I, uh, probably about two years before I actually started Beautiful Stitches, but I was really starting to think about it. We were on a holiday in England and we were walking along the river where my son was, near where my son was born. And I was saying to them, uh, you know, I think, I think this is what I would really like to do. I think what I would really love to do is to run this embroidery business. I don't know what it looks like yet, but I think this is what I would like to do. And when you have a 10-year-old and a six-year-old look at you and say, well, mum, if that's what you want to do, you just have to do it. <laughs> you almost have this sense of responsibility of, I actually have to do it so that they know that, that if they've got a passion that they can follow, that they'll do it too. So they were very much a, a driving force um, as well. And there were other people around me and, and this network of mums who wanted me to, to teach their kids how to sew. They also were voices that were saying, you know, you've got a skill here that, that many of us don't have, just go for it. So yeah, that having those people around you who were, who were helping to, to give you the confidence, it's back to this confidence thing again, to give you the confidence to take those first steps was, was really, really important. Yeah, it was really wonderful how your kids were just so, like it was so simple. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, this is, this is obvious, mum. If this is what you want to do, this is what you do. <laughs> and, I, and I love that simplicity of children. And that's actually one of the reasons why I've continued to teach children. Um, I teach both children and adults. And, um, and they do have a, um, an honesty and a simplicity in the way that they look at things. And they're also not afraid of creativity. You know, often by the time mm. I'm teaching women who are retired, um, they, they've, they've got a fear about whether or not they're creative and whether or not they're good enough and all these sorts of things. Uh, and if you're teaching, especially, I love teaching kids who are around that 10 to 12 age group. Mm -hmm. they, they're not scared. You know, they, they have, they've, they've got enough skills that they can do things, but they're not scared yet. They, they haven't quite hit high school and teenage and all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff where sometimes those, those fears of not fitting in come in. And it's, it's a beautiful age to teach. They're great. Mm. Yeah, I think creativity is something that everyone's everyone's born with, but it fizzles out soon by the time you, you finish high school or college yeah. or something like that. What what are some of the yeah. things that you've seen um, different in in the way uh, the the classes engage between a class of twelve year olds versus a class of um, an older demographic? Um, yeah, so, so it, it does come down to this idea of, uh, so for instance, so when, I, when I teach, um, say, girls year five, year six, if I say to them, uh, what I want you to do is, is just create whatever you want uh, in this embroidery hoop. So whatever idea you have, we're going to interpret it in stitch and we're going to put it into this hoop. And in the room, there's this buzz of excitement because one wants to do a dog and another one wants to do a horse and another one wants to do a skull, another one wants to do some sort of geometric pattern or whatever, and, and away they go. You know, they do, generally speaking, they just start to light up and the room is buzzing with excitement. Um, and uh, my other, so that's, that's one of the demographics that I, I teach. My main other demographic is women who are retired. So majority are 60 plus. And um, they'll often say, well, I'm not quite sure what I should do, or I'm not quite sure. And I'll say, well, what is it that you love? Um, well, I think I like this, but I, 
I don't know whether I'm good enough. I don't care whether you're good enough. That's, that's not, I, I just want to know what it is that you love. Um, and you often see it in colour. So actually colour is a really interesting way of attacking creativity. When I, when I work with, with young kids, they don't hesitate to choose colours and put them together however they want, you know. So mm -hmm. they, they don't, even, don't even think about it. You know, I really like that colour. Now I could put this colour in and they don't think. And when you're, getting, you're teaching an older class of women and they're choosing colours for a project, they'll often say to me, well, do you think this goes? And I'll say, well, do you like it? <laughs> Mm. And they're often, they're often not, not sure enough of their choices to say, well, I do like it. And, and colour, I think, is something, again, we have all these ideas about what, what's right and what's wrong. But actually, it can be a really personal thing. And you can say, well, I like that with that and that. So I will put them together um, and try it. And then you come back to the mistakes thing. If it doesn't work, you can always pull it out and try again. You know, there's nothing wrong with trying a few different colour combinations until you get one that seems to work. And making those mistakes becomes a learning thing. So the, the, I, I think colour is a really good way to see the difference between uh, young kids and uh, older adults in terms of that confidence. It's, it's a really nice window into how people make choices and are worried about their choices and are concerned about their their creative ability mm. um and do you feel like uh, as you as you see the the older group uh, progress along with more and more classes they're more confident about using more colors and creativity absolutely absolutely and that's that's why i love what i do because the the you gradually see women who come in initially lacking a lot of confidence and not wanting to not wanting to do it wrong always i'm always being told i don't want to do it wrong and i say there is no right or wrong this is art you know you can do whatever you like um and and to see them grow in confidence is is fantastic i actually wrote a blog post about it i don't know maybe two or three years ago and I, I, the blog post went along the lines that um, I'm an embroidery teacher but I don't teach embroidery what I teach is confidence mm. because I genuinely believe that that you know anybody can learn to pick up a needle and thread and anybody can just put needle up needle down which is basically what embroidery is my job as an embroidery teacher is actually to give people the confidence to do that in their own way and with the colours that they love and with the designs that they love and to then start putting their own spin on it. Uh, and so I know that I'm doing my job well when somebody comes to me and says, well, actually, I don't want to work the way the pattern the way you've given it to me. I want to change it. And that's when I know I've done my job because as soon as they start taking that creative control and that creative confidence themselves, the sky's the limit. It's so interesting how... That's it's such a big thing that you're improving someone's confidence, yet you did say that people did say it was kind of like going back in terms of your career compared to science and embroidery. Exactly, um, exactly. And I think that's the thing that's just been so interesting for me um, is that um, it, it's so easy to look at, at craft-based activities and these kinds of creative things and see them as being not important, um, as not having, um, not having a particular role. And yet, if, if they build your creative confidence, then that confidence is actually something that you take into other parts of your life as well. And that's what we've often, as, as groups, we all often talk about how important that is. And I think, you know, especially in the time that we're at at the moment, 
Um, you're seeing so much evidence in people in, in lockdown and isolation where they're doing a lot of things with their hands. Um, you know, we've got a lot of people baking bread because it feels good to, to, to work the dough. You've got a lot of people doing jigsaw puzzles, not on their computer screens, but actual physical jigsaw puzzles because it's, it's that tactile thing. We've got lots of people knitting and crocheting and stitching and working with fabrics and working with, with materials. And I think um, there, there's, there's something about that connection to making things that builds confidence and also gives you a sense of comfort and a sense of well-being and that's I've, I've come to learn that that's a really really important thing and as it turns out it that seems to be my contribution my contribution turned out not to be a a research scientist in in some important research team somewhere <laughs> in a university it turned out that my contribution was to to work with individual people helping them to build their confidence. And, and it's incredibly satisfying for me that, that I got to find this space. And do you feel like during COVID um, that, yeah, people have been more um, interested in embroidery um, and have engaged with, um, with beautiful stitches a lot more? Yeah, well, I've certainly had a lot more remote interest, which has been quite interesting. And I've had people who will just get on the phone and ring me and say, look, I'd like to work this pattern. Can you give me some advice about what materials I should use or, or whatever? Um, uh, I've also been teaching classes remotely, so uh, which has been surprising how well that's worked, actually, because the majority of, again, the majority of women that I work with are uh, perhaps not as technologically literate as the... The, the people in their 20s and 30s and so they've um, but they've really embraced it and they've really embraced supporting each other's creative journeys from afar if you like um, and uh, uh, I, I've seen it as a real positive um, and I've, I've certainly been more busy so my business has actually been quite busy in a different kind of way so less face-to-face -face teaching but more preparing materials and, and contacting people and, and sending information out and that sort of stuff. So, uh, and I, I know that a lot of other people in, in my industry, if you like, have been experiencing the same sort of thing. And what are some of the challenges in terms of um, doing this kind of thing online? Um, how have you kind of planned your classes differently? Well, I guess the most important thing is that I've, I've taught myself how to do videos. <laughs> so right. this is not something that I ever did before. So I didn't create instructional videos. I now do. Um, and it was something that I had to learn fairly quickly because um, I was in the middle of teaching a class and all of a sudden we weren't able to meet in person. And so uh, the class had been planned for, for the full year. And I didn't want these people to lose it because these kinds of things were important. So I quickly... Um, flipped around to, to recording videos and then uh, being able to edit them and then uh, distribute them. So uh, that's been the biggest learning curve for me. Uh, and it's been surprisingly effective, um, I guess, having been used to, to teaching in person for the last eight years, I've actually really enjoyed the process of, uh, I think when you create a video, you actually have to come down to the to the key points. So I've actually really enjoyed focusing the classes quite specifically via the, the videos. And then we have private Facebook group or something like that. And 
the support that the students give each other. I'm actually not a very active participant in those Facebook groups. It's actually the students working together. And again, it always comes down to colour. Do you think this is a good colour choice? How's this looking? Um, just, just throwing in the work and where they're up to date and having people say, oh, it's looking great, keep going, all that sort of stuff. So that, that community feel has, has not been lost at all. Um, it's just been, re it's, it's, it's been generated in a different way, but that's been great. Because these are some times that I don't think we've ever experienced before with COVID and social isolation, everything. What do you think, um, having been involved in both science and embroidery careers, what do you think is the role of art and science in terms of a pandemic like the one we're facing right now? Mm, well, I guess, um, I guess the, the easy question, or there are a couple of easy answers. One is that, that art um, and, and not just fine art, but the wider arts, um, arts and crafts uh, provide hope. They provide a sense of comfort. Um, uh, they give us a way to, to share joy and beauty. And I think joy and beauty are just incredibly important in our lives and sometimes underrated. Um, and science obviously is playing an unbelievably important role in, in trying to solve the problem. <laughs> mm. You know, um, we've got teams of people working on the medical side. We've got teams of people working on the psychological impact of this. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think possibly out of it, we'll have teams of people who have been working on um, new solutions to problems that we didn't even know existed until the pandemic came. Um, and, and so I think, I think both are equally important and both have a really um, complementary role to play uh, in addressing the technical problems, but also the psychological problems or the emotional problems associated with, with this kind of pandemic, which like you say, is totally unprecedented. Mm. And um, having been, having been um, involved in both science and embroidery, um, have you, how have you noticed that people have perceived you, let's say at a dinner party when you were working working in geophysics when you'd say this, I was doing your PhD or right now when you're at a dinner party and you're saying you're working in embroidery and you're running classes. Have you noticed that people have perceived you differently or what are the yes. conversations you've had? Yes, I think um, uh, the, the wonderful thing is that most people are surprised now when I say, oh, actually I teach hand embroidery um, and they go, what? <laughs> Mm. And then they want to know more because being an embroiderer is not, is not necessarily a common thing. You know, there's not a lot of hand embroidery teachers um, out there. And so uh, people often want to know more. And because I love what I do, I have no hesitation in, in talking about it. And so for me, I'm able to share a real sense of enthusiasm. And even though their initial reaction might be hmm, odd choice um, when they, when we finished a conversation, I often get a, a, you know, a lovely response of, you know, you're so lucky to be doing something that, that you're so passionate about, which I am. I'm just so lucky. Um, I think uh, as a scientist, when, 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 when I would talk to people about my science career, it was more what people expected of me. So that's probably the difference. When, when I was working as a geophysicist or talking about geophysics, it was more what people, it seemed like a normal choice and it was what people expected. and um, 
we probably didn't have quite such interesting conversations because um, you come back to that idea of, of people's attitude to science and people would, if I said, you know, I was working on a, a, a scientific research project about dryland senility in the southwest, for instance, um, people would maybe assume that they couldn't understand so they wouldn't take the conversation much further. Uh, so, whereas um, with embroidery and talking about creativity and confidence and working with your hands, it's something that nearly everybody can connect to and nearly everybody has an opinion about it. And so often I find that conversations go uh, deeper and longer these days when I talk about my career as an embroiderer than perhaps they did when I talked about my career as a scientist. Which means that science has, a, has an image problem which we need to fix. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and I think science communication, um, yeah, this is something that is evolving more and more. And you can, Absolutely. obviously from that, you can understand why. Um, yeah. yeah. And so how, how do you think that, um, in terms of the image problem, can you tell me a bit more about that? How do you think that scientists should be talking about what they're doing or um, to, uh, say, like a layperson who doesn't really have a PhD? Yeah, so um, there's a, there's a, it's, it's quite an old TED talk, but there's a fabulous TED talk by a guy called Yuri Allon. I don't know whether you know it. Do you know it at all? No. No, he talked, about, he talked about um, the importance of, of being able to acknowledge that in science, we don't always know where we're going. And so I, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the talk off the top of my head, but if you, if you Google Yuri Allon TED talk, you'll find it. And it's this beautiful talk about how in science, the way that we report science in our journals and so on is that, that we started at point A and we arrived at point B. And so as people go into a science career, they can often feel like they need to know what point A is, where they're starting, and they also need to know what point B is, where they're going to finish, and they just need to go through the process in the middle and get it right. And actually, that's not the way it works at all. When you go in at the beginning, you'll start with some sort of question and then you'll sort of hit the middle and he calls it the, I think he calls it the fuzzy, the fuzzy middle where you absolutely do not know what's going on and you're, you're not getting any of the answers that you want and the experiments are not working and you're feeling really stuck. And so his attitude to working with his team was that he used um, improv drama as his driver and he would encourage people in his team to always say, yes and so yes i've listened to everything that you've said and what about this or yes those are all good ideas and what about this so letting everything be okay and encouraging more and more idea generation so that you could pop out the end of that card at the end and probably end up at point c or even x you know you you mm -hmm. weren't actually going to end up at b at all you're always going to end up somewhere different rather than having a, a culture that feels quite closed and works on the the, the more of, oh, but no, I don't think that will work. So his, his, his attitude was always the yes and. And I think we need to encourage um, people to see science as something where uh, we are often not quite sure of where we're going and we are making a lot of mistakes before we get to the answer that we want. Uh, and that you don't have to be... Um, you know, super, super, super smart to be able to do this stuff. You just need to be persistent. And, um, and I think, um, yeah, so certainly in things like 
that the, the so-called hard sciences like physics. It's seen as something that only the very, very best and brightest can do and that you need to have a very clear trajectory and, and that this is from the outside. People on the inside might know differently, but this is the way it's perceived from the outside. And so people are scared. You know, they're scared to go into these fields because they're just perceived as being too hard and too complicated. And, um, and certainly some research teams don't have that yes and culture, which I think is, is I remember looking at this talk and going, ah, oh, wow, you know, it would have been so cool to work with a scientist who had that kind of attitude of, of letting you wallow around in the fuzzy middle for a while mm -hmm. until you found all those threads and brought them together and then found your pathway out of, of that. Uh, it's, it's a much less certain business than the way it's reported. Mm. And I think maybe sometimes it would be would be really interesting to see more of those stories and make science less scary. Mm. I, I feel like it's like we need to approach science with more of an artistic mindset. Absolutely. Yeah. I could not agree more. Yes. Mm. Yeah. As someone who's had, who's done a lot in two completely different careers, but what has been the most <laughs> interesting aspect um, of your career, do you think? Mm. Um, just the sheer variety of it, I guess. Mm. You know, um, uh, it's... It, at the point that I am today, I can look back and say there is absolutely nothing that's been wasted. So, so for me, being a scientist has informed my embroidery practice. Um, being a mum has informed my embroidery practice. Um, uh, being a scientist has enabled to me to, to look at my embroidery as more than just embroidery and actually as a... Uh, a community thing and a cultural thing um, and I so I I actually see this is sound this will probably sound a bit weird it's all a highlight I've loved every single minute of it you know every part of it has has got me to where I am today and I wouldn't swap it for anything um, uh, I loved the fact that I became more gender aware when I was running wise um, I, I mentioned briefly that I edited a science magazine for three years the skills that I got out of that in terms of of writing and editing and working to deadlines and layouts and stuff are now invaluable in writing really good embroidery patterns. <laughs> um, so, so I see all of them as, as having played a, a really important part. And, and that the great joy for me today is that, that I got, that I have been able to explore so many different areas and that I don't feel like I'm even nearly finished like there's just so much more that i want to do and i am I'm, I'm so passionate now about how important it is that we work with our hands and so i'm on this whole next path of, of, of following that just to see where it goes that's wonderful how you said nothing has been wasted i think that's a that's a very rare thing to have <laughs> it's really amazing <laughs> um and, and so what is the next step for you in your career yeah so it's this hands thing i'm um I, I guess, so, so when I say nothing has been wasted, I, I had this period of time where I was a scientist and then I've had this period of time where I've been a, a, a creative embroidery artist, I guess, and I needed to do enough time in both of them to now be able to look at the intersection, I think, and I've become really fascinated 
by how important working with our hands is for our learning and for our sense of well-being. Um, so I'm, I'm just right at the very beginning now of, of wanting to explore that much more, more deeply. Um, and, but I don't think I could have done it until I'd had like a good number of years under my belt of working in a creative way with my hands long term and also seeing the impact of that on my students. And I think this is what's driven it. I've, I've seen students who come in, uh, you know, lacking confidence or having had very difficult life circumstances or looking for an escape. And I've seen that just sitting and working with their hands has made them feel more comfortable in their own skin. Um, and they'll come back and they'll say they just, you know, Friday mornings, for instance, are the best time in their week because it's when they get to come and sit quietly and do things with their hands. But then what's really interesting is that, that when we're doing that, um, often we have the most extraordinary conversations when everybody is sitting around in a group working with their hands and it's almost like we turn the judgment off. And so... There's, there's something about having engaged your hands in, in activity that then allows your brain just to settle and head off in, its, in interesting directions. And so I've become more and more convinced that, that the work that we do with our hands is equally important to the work that we do with our minds. And we have an education system that is very much skewed in terms of um, academic to the mind side and I think we've been neglecting the hand side um, and I I've I feel like there's an important and there's a there's another important contribution that I can make or start or or something I'm not quite sure where it's going yet but there's something there that that to me feels deeply important that we that we understand that that hand work and that mind work actually go together uh, and I would love to see us there's, there's so many interesting places all around the world that are working on little aspects of this. And so at the moment, I'm down the rabbit hole of exploring as much information as I can and finding out about interesting forms of education where they're embracing this and the impact it's having on those young people and older people doing that kind of work. And we'll see where it goes. I don't know. <laughs> but that's, that's, it's, it's, it's almost like everything that I've done to this point is now the springboard to, to do more exploration down that. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's completely amazing. And I think what you talked about, how the education system is skewed more towards academics than handwork, I think that kind of explains how people view intellect as well. And I think it's, it's, it's crucial that um, people like you are trying to change that. So yeah, that's, that's incredible. So, so yeah, um, if, if you could go back uh, in the past and give your students stuff one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, I, I, I think it would be just enjoy the journey. You know, you, you, don't, you honestly don't know where you're going to end up and you can't, you can't predict where you're going to end up. So the most important thing is the journey, the journey that you make. Uh, there is no right or wrong. This is just... This idea of right and wrong is so heavily embedded in our society. And, and actually, I've got a, a daughter who's, who's in uh, year 12 at the moment. So she's right in the midst of making all these decisions and choices about, about her next step. And there can be a lot of um, anxiety about 
what's the right place? Where is the right place for me, for me to go? And there isn't a right place. There'll be a choice and it'll be a, a step on the path and it will take you in a new direction and you may or may not engage with that direction. If you don't, well, you just change the path. So for me, I, I would just say, don't, don't worry about the destination, just enjoy the journey. The journey is just, is so important. And uh, the connections that you make on the journey and the experiences that you make on the journey um, uh, are all part of life's rich tapestry. So that, that, that's, to me, the most important thing. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, um, and so just to get a, a quick idea of, because you said you um, run these classes for um, young kids and you said it's really wonderful to see them really creative. So if you could go into a classroom full of 12 year olds and teach them something for one hour right now, what would you do? Or what would it look like? Oh gosh, this is such a, this is such a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think I, I would want them, I guess the most important thing that we want out of, of young kids is for them to be, to be self-aware learners, by which I mean, um, you want them to, to learn to have confidence in understanding themselves. So um, I would want them to learn to make mistakes and not be scared of it. I would want them to be able to look at what they've done and, uh, and understand what it tells them about themselves. So I'm somebody who likes to work uh, with a whole series of steps or I'm somebody who likes to work with lots of things all at once or I'm somebody who likes to work with very neat patterns or I'm somebody who likes to work with big, bold patterns. And so, and, and develop that ability to learn about yourself, I think. Um, when I reflect on what my mum and dad gave to me, it was by far the most important thing was this idea that they let me learn who I was and let me learn to be comfortable with who I was. And I think if you can have that at 12, then, then when you continue on this journey, you, you become less worried about comparing yourself to others and you just do what's most important to you. So yeah, so actually as I'm talking to you, the most important thing is, is to really have a sense of yourself so that you don't compare yourself to others. That's, that's what I would want 12 year olds to have. That's really lovely. And I think that, yeah, the, what you've talked about, and I think the essence of your TED talk going back to 2016 when we first met was again, being able to make mistakes without fear and that in itself um, without fear part gives you so much hope. And I think that um, that's something that I've seen throughout a whole conversation today. So thank you so much for having a chat with us, uh, Anne-Marie. Can you tell us, uh, me and the listeners where people can find out more about Beautiful Stitches and about yeah, um, more if, about yourself? If you, yep, so if you, if you Google Beautiful Stitches, um, beautifulstitches.com.au. I'm on Instagram at A-M-A-M-A-Y-E-S, A-M-A Maze, and I'm on Facebook at Beautiful Stitches. So uh, those, those are the best places to find me and what I'm doing. Uh, and anybody wants to talk to me or ask questions, I'm always happy to, to have a chat. Awesome. And we'll make sure that all those links um, are on the podcast page as well. Um, 
So thank you, Anne-Marie, for joining us and our listeners for tuning in. Uh, you can find out more about TEDxUWA through Facebook and Instagram at TEDxUWA or email us at hello at TEDxUWA.com if you have any inquiries. So like I said at the start, we will be hosting our free virtual TEDxUWA salon called Revival tonight, and we would love for you to join us and our speakers. Um, we will be talking about how telehealth has advanced in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what students can do as they graduate during these times. You can find us live on Facebook and we'll be jumping onto Zoom for a live Q&A where you can submit your questions to our speakers. We hope to see you there. Once again, thank you so much, Anne-Marie. It was lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.